Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Alison very much for reading. Um, may I add my welcome to uh, Claire's if you've uh, joined us since the beginning. It's great to uh, see you all here today, uh, particularly in a really hectic week like this. And perhaps it's right we should pray as we begin, so let's pray. God our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to gather together in middle of a busy day uh, to, uh, to hear your words. So we pray that you would uh, quieten our minds. We pray that uh, you would open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us through the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, 
If you can remember back two weeks ago, two weeks ago on uh, Tuesday, uh, where we are in Matthew's Gospel, we saw Jesus ministering in Israelite territory, uh, in feeding 5,000 people and walking on the water. And the main message that came across there was that he was the rescuing God of Israel, fulfilling the expectations of the Old Testament of what God would do to save his people. But then last week we had quite a kind of shocking setback because we saw last week in Jesus' interaction with uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that it's, it's not just the religious elite of Israel that he's uh, come to save. And that's because everybody, religious elites included, has this same problem of a sinful human heart infected from within. Remember those shocking lines about everything coming out of our hearts being sinful. And that's despite our external religious appearance or performance. So we've got to this stage where we know that Jesus has come to save all those in Israel who, who know they've got a problem with their sinful human heart. But it still leaves the question, what about the rest of the world? Has he just come for Israel? And this is our focus of the passage that we've just had read today. As we see Jesus, we travel with him into Gentile territory. And there are three different scenes that, um, that we have here in this passage that I just want to walk us through today, where he ministers to specifically Gentile people. And the first scene is this remarkable account of the healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter. Because on first reading, it's quite a puzzling conversation, isn't it? On the one hand, he's intentionally travelled essentially northwest of the Sea of Galilee into Gentile territory. Tyre and Sidon was beyond the borders, borders of Israel. It was a coastal region on the Mediterranean, if you can picture that. And so he's clearly come to do ministry amongst Gentile people. And then, on the other hand, we then get this conversation between him and this woman where he appears to be reluctant to respond to her request for healing her daughter because she's a Gentile, not an Israelite. Now, given that he has intentionally gone into Gentile territory, it cannot be that Jesus is either surprised that this woman is approaching him or that he's reluctant to grant it. He does go looking for exactly this kind of conversation. So I think the best way to understand this conversation that takes place is that Jesus intentionally strings this conversation out and really holds the tension in it to almost to the very limit to accentuate the point he's going to make. So st stay with me and watch how he does it. So verse 22, uh, she makes a first appeal, but he doesn't answer her. He just, he just, he just keeps her hanging. Next you see the disciples ask him, send her away, she's, re she's really annoying us, this woman. But he doesn't send her away, which would have been perfectly easy to do. Then we next get, um, keep your eyes on the, on, on the passage, please, um, this kind of a side comment to his disciples, like he's pressing pause in the conversation for a moment. And he then says to them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And this is a kind of side comment where he's acknowledging to his disciples that in his earthly ministry, 
he does have a priority to take the good news of the kingdom to the people of Israel. And this is God's chosen plan in the history of the world, that he will reveal himself and his plan of salvation through the Israelite people and then, uh, then to the rest of the world. And it's actually only after Jesus' resurrection and into the early church, as we see it recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, that we see this message of Jesus' kingdom fully exploding beyond the borders of Israel to the rest of the world. And that's the great story of Acts. And yet, there are these signs in the Gospels that Jesus' kingdom is going to go further than Israel. Because back early in Matthew's Gospel itself, he's healed a Gentile centurion servant in Capernaum back in chapter 8. And, um, and here, with the Canaanite woman, he's not sending her away like the disciples are asking him to do. He's keeping her hanging. So she comes back to him with another question. She tries again. Second appeal in verse 25, and it's even stronger this time. She kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. And he doesn't keep her hanging this time. He cranks up the whole temperature of the conversation even more with this highly provocative statement. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, dogs was a commonly used term for Gentiles in Israelite culture. And the Bible commentators add that it's not actually a particularly derogatory term, although as we read it straight off, it seems like that. But it's a, it's a descriptive fact that, they, that dogs were unclean and Gentiles were unclean if they were outside the people of Israel and keeping the laws of Israel. So it's a kind of factual description. So it's not that he's being particularly rude to her, but he is still apparently pushing her away by saying, my kingdom's for the children of Israel, not for unclean Gentiles. So finally, this provokes her to give um, the answer that Jesus has been really pushing for in verse 27. And he, he, here's what she says, this awesome statement. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And in this statement, she, she shows that she knows her Bible because she acknowledges the priority of the people of Israel and God's plans. But she also knows from the scriptures that Gentiles could be included in God's people if they put their faith in him and followed his commandments. And, th and this is clearly the answer that Jesus has been wanting her to get to because look how joyfully affirming his response to her is. He, he says, oh woman, great is your faith. Now do you know, there's only two people in in the, in the Gospels, who, who actually get this response from Jesus, and they're both Gentiles. It's the Gentile centurion uh, in chapter 8, and this woman here, great is your faith, both Gentiles. He's come into Gentile territory, he's kept this conversation going on purpose, and he's pushed this woman uh, in conversation to the very limit in order to maximize his point. Yes, he's the rescuing king of Israel, with a priority to take that message to Israel first. But there's also no doubt by the end of this conversation that he is the rescuing king of Gentiles too. Great is your faith, he says. And then he heals her daughter instantly. Scene one. Scene two, verse 29. If you're a geographer, picture it in mind, we head south, southeast again now, back to the Sea of Galilee and down the eastern side. 
And it's Mark's Gospel who actually gives us that detail that this takes place in Gentile territory again, down on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. There, verse 31, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. This description of the lame, blind, crippled, and mute being healed is almost an exact repetition of one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah and what he will do when he comes to reign. It comes in this amazing passage in Isaiah 35. And in that passage, there's this glorious picture of the salvation of the people of God. Not only will people be healed physically in this uh, new creation that the Messiah is bringing, but also they will be redeemed to live in joy and happiness in God's perfect new creation. And it's not quite clear from the passage in Isaiah at that stage whether this wonderful promise of the Messiah's reign is going to apply um, just to Israel or, or to all people. But when Jesus takes, takes it on in this setting by doing these miracles in Gentile territory amongst Gentiles, he's leaving us in no doubt that he is this Messiah, this Saviour for the whole world. And the Gentiles who were there at the time clearly get the point because in verse 31 they say, it says, they glorified the God of Israel. Scene 2. Scene 3, verses 32 and 33. They tell us that there's such extraordinary events going on here on this eastern side of the Sea of Galilee that the, the crowds have now stayed out in this remote place with Jesus for three days. And this sets us up for the final scene that takes place in Gentile territory. He has compassion for these huge crowds of people who've turned out because they've got nothing to eat. And, and as with the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus does meet their physical needs with a miraculous feeding. But it also acts as a sign. So remember, with the 5,000, he was in completely different territory. It was in Israelite territory. And the point was that, to show that he was the rescuing God of Israel, like the God who rescued his people in Exodus. And there were 12 baskets of leftovers signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus in chapter 16 makes a particular point about this, these 12 baskets. So he really wants uh, his readers to get that symbolic point about Israel. But here, here we are in Gentile territory with the 4,000 and seven baskets are taken up. And then in the Bible, seven is consistently the number for completeness. So this feeding of the 4,000 acts as a sign as well that the Gentiles too are included in this great divine rescue. It's a universal and complete rescue that extends to the whole world. So scene one, a Gentile woman being applauded for her faith by Jesus, the messianic son of David, as she calls him there. Scene two, crowds of Gentiles included in these messianic healings prophesied by Isaiah and scene three Jesus feeding crowds of Gentiles again with abundant bread just as the God of Israel had done in Exodus so I think the message is clear from these three scenes Jesus isn't just God the saviour of Israel he is God the saviour of the world and I, I want us just to kind of think of two potential applications for us 
here now this lunchtime from these three scenes. And the first one is, this gift of salvation is an amazing gift that everyone can receive. So think back to last week. We saw that the problem of the sinful human heart is a universal human problem. It was quite, it was quite depressing, to say the least, and convicting to hear. And we also heard that external and religious rule-keeping, for example, can't save us, can't cure our hearts. We're hopeless cases. But here we, here we have this week, Christ coming as the saviour for everyone, both those within Israel and those outside Israel. So as we, as we sit here this lunchtime, 2,000 years away, 3,000 miles away roughly, from when and where these events took place, this promise includes us. The mercy of Jesus Christ is available to each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what nationality or race we are. It's not dependent on our religious performance. Remember the Canaanite woman, just as, as an example of this. All she does is ask Jesus for mercy. Notice she doesn't come to Jesus with some kind of fake birth certificate trying to prove that she's an Israelite, for instance. She doesn't come with a nice kind of religious moral CV to impress him with and the good things that she's done. Unlike the religious elite that we were looking at last week, she knows that what comes from within her makes her unclean, not her external religious observance. And all she does is cry out to Christ for mercy, Son of David, have mercy. See, Christianity is like winning the lottery. You don't have to be a good person to win the lottery. Anyone can win the lottery. And, and God in Christ has made us those winners freely receiving the gift of his mercy. If only we ask him for it. The second thing I want us to consider is that Christ the Saviour of the world is not just an amazing gift that we can receive, but also that it's a life-transforming gift once we've received it. Now this week, and for the last several weeks, Let's face it, we find ourselves in what many are describing as the greatest political crisis facing this country for several generations. And I'm sure each, each and every one of us can chime with this, that certainly I come across it in talking to people. Frustration, anger, and a certain amount of despair are hanging in the air here in Parliament at the moment. And in this passage, Jesus announces himself as God the Saviour King, bringing a kingdom where there's going to be restoration of relationship with God for all who will receive it. And it's a life-transforming gift that we, all of us can receive now. It doesn't suddenly make life perfect. Whatever happens in our future relationship with the European Union, it's always going to be imperfect. Uh, life will always be imperfect. Politics will be imperfect a mixture of joy and satisfaction and suffering and frustration. But this, this gift that Jesus offers here in this passage can transform our political lives and the way we think about it in two crucial ways, I suggest. First, that those who have this gift of life, who know it, uh, Christians, can, can act now as people of hope. 
because of the death and resurrection of this king that we see later in Matthew's Gospel, we have a sure and certain hope that Christ in the future will establish a perfect kingdom that we all long for. And this isn't just groundless, nice, wishful thinking type of hope. It is rooted in the death and resurrection of God the Son in history. So Christians can act now as people of hope, testifying to a perfect kingdom in the midst of the frustration of the here and now. But also, secondly, it doesn't make those who follow Christ quietists, who sit around doing nothing while they await this final perfect kingdom. Christians wait actively. Christ calls his people to live according to the nature of this kingdom that has begun, to love our neighbours and to do good to all people. So in the midst of political frustration and crisis, we can be liberated by the knowledge of God's forgiveness. And then Christians, those who follow Christ, can give all of themselves, their whole lives, to serving others and to finding solutions as they await their coming king and his perfect kingdom. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ came as a saviour of the whole world, even us. And we thank you that it's not his salvation is not dependent on our religious or moral performance. We thank you that this knowledge of forgiveness turns us outwards from ourselves in self-forgetfulness to serve others and also to act as signs of true and lasting hope for the world that can be found in Christ the perfect King. We ask for your help to live lives that reflect this. In Jesus' name, Amen.